0: Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. And joining me is my confederate in arms, of course, the one, the only, Ken Nalbon. Ken, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Rich, and thank you for the new title once again.
0: Absolutely, yes. Um, I meant comrade in arms. I don't know why confederate came out. It still works, though. <laughs> And it starts with a C, so it all works out. Uh, Speaking, though, of compatriots, comrades, confederates, whatever, that kind of, you know, indicates some sort of partnership between two parties, and that bleeds right into what we're going to be talking about to start off the show. Big news uh, was just dropped today that Microsoft and Oracle will create high-speed links between their data centers in order to make cloud services for the two companies work better together. The companies will also support login to services from either company with a single username and the ability to get tech support from either company. Very interesting. Uh, This will let software running in one cloud access services directly in another, and the use case I was seeing a lot of times was allowing software in Azure to potentially access uh, advanced Oracle uh, database services. Mm -hmm. Uh, Microsoft has similar deals with SAP and Adobe, so this isn't exactly something new, but... Oracle is a direct, theoretically a direct competitor to Azure uh, with their cloud services. So I think that's why it's getting a lot of attention right now. AWS obviously creates some strange bedfellows with their dominance among their competitors. But does this seem like a model for smaller cloud companies to innovate on services rather than trying to complete, to, to really offer a complete cloud play? Ken?
1: I think a lot of smaller cloud providers have known for a while that, yeah, they need to basically be able to partner and have more value-add offerings that they can't develop themselves in-house and nearly compare in size to uh, AWS Azure, they don't really need that. I think Microsoft is growing sufficiently enough that this is much more of a big deal for Oracle, clearly. Um, I think really what's the big key here is that they are going to have some kind of unified authentication, right? Uh, Direct connections, they have kind of existed before. You probably had to go to some kind of third-party telco networking provider to get this before, but you could always get low-latency, high-speed interconnects between different cloud providers for a long time now. Uh, But the fact that you can authenticate in one place is great. And for the enterprises that are already locked into AD uh, for their main authentication scheme, Active Directory, and they're using it in Azure as well as on-premises, and now they can extend that into Oracle Cloud, that's a pretty big win. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that the biggest lock-in for AWS is IAM, basically their authentication uh, product. And and that's kind of true. You basically create this entire... Access and governance um, system around a, a particular schema, and in this case, for, for customers who've been on AD for you know a couple of decades now, uh, now they have more option than just Azure. They have Azure and Oracle as kind of their opportunity. So that's kind of what I take away from this: the, that it's really not about the interconnect; it's about the interoperability.
0: And does that kind of play into the you know the overall you know narrative of Microsoft of being? this isn't necessarily a more open move but not a we're going to just lock you in purely to azure we're going to play nice with others let them do their services and then and then have this greater ecosystem play i
1: think so because i think sacha recognizes what microsoft didn't for the longest time is that a happy customer is a repeat customer right
0: <laughs> you mean not one that's completely embittered against your company
1: exactly yeah now and interesting point That's kind of most Oracle customers. So (laughs) maybe they're going to kind of win them over in some way with this play. I don't know.
0: Well, and it does certainly make it uh, easier now that you have that one login, you know, if you gradually want to move your stuff over. Um, But I I do think it does signal, you know, we've seen, we've had Oracle now present at a couple of field day events. And Mm -hmm. kind of the overall impression is like, they're doing some interesting stuff. I don't know how they're going to, you know, be generally competitive uh, they're they're doing some interesting stuff with with bare metal, uh, you know, cloud bare metal instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing some interesting stuff, um, you know, with their uh, and again, their their bread and butter is always going to be database, and they have some advanced, um, uh, you know, uh, offerings in that regard that I think can stand out among them. So they have some differentiators, and this really opens up it opens it up to a much wider user base. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, Oracle is all about finding those high margin niche categories that they can serve.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and you know, to the point of competing with AWS, that's always kind of why AWS seems so inevitable is because every year at reInvent, they announce all of these niche corner cases and it seems like any one competitor can't really compete with those. But no. you know, maybe if, if this becomes a more general trend, that'd be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we had some interesting uh, acquisitions by Palo Alto Networks. They recently announced uh, some moves that I think is really showing them planning for the kind of security future and not just resting on their laurels. They've acquired the container security company Twistlock and the serverless-focused PureSec. Uh, these will all be rolled into their Prisma security suite. Palo Alto is now set up to offer really end-to-end application security regardless of where the app uh, resides or is delivered. Uh, our own Tom Hollingsworth uh, wrote something on his networking nerd blog, uh, kind of looking at this and and really had some positive words for this as compared to some other recent acquisition news in IT. Uh, Does this seem more like a reactive move, though, by Palo Alto, or does the timing line up with how organizations are adopting serverless and containers?
1: I think this is uh, good from a timing perspective for Palo Alto. I think there are probably some people out there in the application development space who will say, oh, containers are old news. We've been using those for over half a decade, and serverless has been out for a few years as well. Yes, but that's not how the enterprise works, right? (laughs) Uh, I mean – you, virtualization is probably the previous revolution in application technology, or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as recent as a few years ago, I was still running into people who had not completely virtualized. It's like, what? How's that happening? <laughs> so there are plenty of enterprises who are just now refactoring their old monolithic applications mm-hmm. to use things like containers and serverless. And for them, this is not a too too late type of. Acquisition. This is probably just in time, or you know, they might not even be in that phase yet. So when they are kind of looking at security applications for their new applications next year, Palo Alto will have an answer for them. So I, I, I do think it's a good time for
0: us. And exactly. And then it associates that with kind of a trusted name that they've already worked with, and you know, they don't have to be going with you know, maybe a, you know, a newer startup or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, to your point, yeah, I think a lot of, you know, whatever you want to call them, web scale or cloud native, uh, newer organizations, yeah, they've been using containers or, or adopting serverless or something like that. But to, exactly to your point, the, the the enterprise situation is much more glacial. And I think we're only going to be mm-hmm. starting to see, especially serverless at scale, probably not even seeing that in most instances. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the timing seems just about right for them. Absolutely. So, Ken, I don't know if over the weekend uh, you had any uh, trouble logging on to any uh, kind of Google-backed services, but there was a kinda. major four-hour outage on June 2nd starting around 3 p.m. Eastern time. The Google G Suite dashboard showed problems with... All uh, Google services and YouTube, Snapchat, Nest, Vimeo, and Discord were also among those affected. So not just, you know, Google-owned properties, but things running on uh, their servers uh, as well. As a result, some brick-and-mortar stores were actually re- that were relying on Shopify were unable to process credit cards during the outage. So really uh, some big implications there. Following that, the next day on June 3rd, Google Fi had an outage where some customers uh, were completely shut out from phone service for a number of hours, including 911 service, which may trigger an F- investigation. Uh, network congestion was cited as the cause for the overall cloud outage. There's no really word on the phi root cause as of yet. I don't even know if we will ever get that. Uh, as the cloud increasingly touches on real-world services, you know, when we're looking at things like Nest, where, you know, you wouldn't be able to, you know, theoretically, uh, you know, look at your home security system or access, you know, the ability to, to your, your thermostat or something like that, there's something as, you know, more of an existential business risk of not being able to process payments. Um, are we are we looking at where, you know, SLAs aren't really enough for organizations, and does there always need to be some kind of, I don't know, some on-prem failover or something like that?
1: Well, there's probably going to be a need for a failover, but I wouldn't necessarily on-prem. This will only add fuel to the multi-cloud hype fire. <laughs> Folks who are saying hey, we need to stretch our application across multiple clouds. We can't be locked into just AWS or just GCP or, or Azure or whatever. Mm-hmm. We need to know that we can have our data in multiple places. We can have our business logic, our web front end, and just distribute it across these and react to any kind of outages within a region or an entire cloud uh, at, at will. I, I don't know that anybody's doing that like really well right now. I, I think a lot of people are talking about it, but nobody is the multi-cloud poster child at this point. Um <laughs> Maybe they will be someday. This is just kind of add, you know. Like I said, fuel to the fire. People who are arguing that this needs to be an operating model, we're going to are going to point to this incident directly. Um, you know, I was affected by it. Uh, you know, I, I'm a Google Fi customer, and my wife sent me a text, and I didn't get in it until hours later and said, "Why did you just send me this?" She said, "I sent you that three hours ago." What are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know. Jeez. Uh, so, so yeah, it happens, and um, it's kind of like you said. It's for those companies that are developing applications that rely on the cloud specifically that don't want to be locked in. Those those ones you mentioned like Nest, Snapchat, Vimeo, Discord, all those. Um, If they're relying on GCP for all or just at least part of their application and that outage takes them down, they're probably going to take another look at this and see how can we design this to fail over, to route around, to basically avoid these kinds of outages affecting our service for large periods of time. Because these are all products that they're not just like taking the weekend off. Yeah, this this happened on a Sunday, but there are 24 by seven service that people around the world or at least around the country are using and they can't really afford these kinds of things to happen
0: necessarily. Yeah, and I think it's also really interesting because this was mostly centered roughly on I I've seen reporting that it was mostly on the east coast of the US, although there were some European users that were also uh claiming they were affected. So, you know, maybe if it's the, you know, whatever the US east region of GCP or or whatever a little bit of infrastructure that is. I'm surprised it, to me it, it there has to have been a greater cause because I would think a company like Vimeo, you know, which again has been online for forever, would I would hope, have some sort of, yeah, fail over to another region, if nothing else, have mm-hmm. checked that box when they were, you know, doing their setup or something like that. So that was surprising to me that we saw out-and-out outages, you know, slowdowns for sure if if there's a, a big regional problem over the course of those hours, but not to have that kind of, by default, is surprising to me for some of these big organizations. And Google itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we've seen this happen before, you know, and another outage is like a big... Uh, AWS outage in S3 a couple of years ago that affected major companies that we think of as you know cloud native and just kind of lifted back the curtain showed, well, they didn't really have the kind of architecture they needed. They could have been using other regions and they weren't. And this S3 outage affected them massively. So yes, if nothing else, you need to look at distributing your application across multiple regions to avoid a specific region outage. And if that's not good enough, maybe you are going to somehow make multi-cloud a thing.
0: Yeah, and it does... It kind of harkens back to something that we talk about a lot on the show which is, you know, misconfiguration being the new security errors and that <laughs> at scale the cloud reveals all of our bad practices over time.
1: Mhm. There's no avoiding it.
0: Speaking of bad practices, uh, on Monday, Congressman David Cicilline announced a major review of leading tech companies to see if they've become so large as to stifle competition and harm consumers. Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon were all cited in the announcement, although the stated review wouldn't focus on an individual company per se. Those were just examples. Uh, the view was supposedly spurred by a general sentiment that the internet is broken, which is a great clickbait headline, and calling this a potential monopoly moment comparable to past congressional probes into airlines and AT&T. The announcement comes after reports from the U.S. Justice Department, uh, excuse me, comes after reports that the U.S. Justice Department and the FTC have determined how to split up jurisdiction over potential investigations into Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, uh, something generally only done as a prelude to a formal probe, basically saying, hey, FTC, you take you take these two giants... DOJ, we're gonna take Google and Apple or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. We've seen we, we're, we're seeing right now this weird moment of kind of bipartisan agreement on this for various conflicting reasons um, about that the tech industry overall deserves a little bit a lot more scrutiny and oversight. But what's really interesting to me is seeing Amazon and Google on this from the perspective of this show, um, how do you see these these probes, uh, these kind of looming probes that are just kind of sitting out there? We kind of know that they're coming. We don't know exactly what form they're going to be taking. Um, impact enterprise decision-making, especially when you have two of the major public cloud providers uh, listed on here. Notably, Microsoft, not anywhere to be seen on here.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I honestly don't really see it impacting decision-making very much because I think that enterprise IT is has been focused on, you know, lock-in and monopolies for, for a long time and making decision making. This feels like Congress finally catching up to the sentiments <laughs> of enterprise IT and consumers in general, right? Yeah. I think if anything, uh, enterprise customers are, are gonna be looking at this thing, list and saying, well, that's nice, but where's Oracle? Or something like that. Yeah. And basically, it, it's basically, yeah, I think they're kind of noticing how. Practices by these four companies uh, are affecting consumers primarily, but it will also affect, it could also affect enterprise customers as well. You, you, You touched on the cloud providers. My guess is it's more about AWS being a retailer and Google controlling ads and search and things like that. But their businesses, you know, they might take a closer look and say, well, AWS is the biggest cloud provider. And they have all these ways of keeping customers from being able to use other clouds once they are so deep in the service. Do they take a look at that? I don't. I don't know. It's kind of hard to dictate technologies to a company like this when they're creating services.
0: Well, and that's something where that might not be something that makes the front page or the you know the big uh, press releases in this because for a for let's face it, for most consumers, things like AWS public cloud, that kind of stuff, is in the background, and they shouldn't have to care about it for the most part. You shouldn't care that you know Discord is on Google Cloud and uh, Netflix mm-hmm. is on AWS or something like that. You just want it to work, but if that becomes, you know, if you're looking at antitrust, and you're looking at someone that you know holds 40 percent of a three-player market or something like that. You know, maybe there are maybe there are some anti-competitive or, or antitrust concerns there. You know, I, I think one of the calls that we've seen, you know, is kind of you know the breakup of big tech. I would think that the you know the natural delineation on Amazon would be you know from maybe their – their ad division, their retail division, and their you know, mm-hmm. and then AWS being split off by itself, not necessarily being split up, uh, even though it is relative I mean, by all accounts very dominant uh in the market.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. But I bet AWS gets a huge customer if that does happen. <laughs>
0: yeah. Gee, who knows our needs better than anyone else? Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming up next, uh, some other yeah, kind of government-related news. The FCC recently concluded a $2.7 billion 5G millimeter wave auction for the 24 and 28 gigahertz spectrum uh, that's you know going to be going for all these 5G deployments. That's what we're seeing, these millimeter wave deployments for these initial 5G trials that are very limited in specific cities and kind of the city-by-city rollout. Uh, While AT&T spent the most money, they spent just under a billion dollars, T-Mobile actually won the most overall licenses with 1,346 2.4 gigahertz uh, licenses for $803 million and spending $39 billion on 865 28 gigahertz licenses. I have no idea why 28 gigahertz is way more expensive. I, I just do not know. Could not find that. T-Mobile has lagged behind AT&T and Verizon on this kind of higher frequency short-range spectrum, which is why we're not seeing them uh, do initial 5G rollouts on um, like those other two companies. And these are designed for more dense urban 5G deployments. You put them on the top of a tower and you get like three blocks worth of 5G or something like that. Presuming the Sprint T-Mobile merger goes through, which is still an open question, I think, at this point. The company would then combine these newly acquired uh, Spectrum licenses with longer range 2.5 gigahertz from Sprint to build a national to build national 5G coverage. I think this is kind of funny because when Sprint rolled out WiMAX, they were either using 2.5 or 2.4 gigahertz. And the big problem Mm -hmm. there was that it didn't have enough range and it couldn't penetrate buildings at all. I have no idea how this will get around that. Um Me neither. is this surprising to see this limited but high speed spectrum get gobbled up by T-Mobile? or I mean, how much of a use case does this kind of you know almost block by block five uh, g deployments? How relevant is that going to be for long term?
1: That's what it sounds like. Five G is to me not being as attuned to the this segment of the industry as say Tom would be. Uh, I, I don't necessarily understand it as deeply, but that's my understanding. Is that five G is going to offer crazy speeds, but the coverage has to be sp- broken up into much smaller chunks, bit by bit, uh, to get the kind of coverage you need, and that means it's going to be highly available in urban areas and not so much anywhere else. Uh, I'm, I'm I, I am kind of surprised to see T-Mobile be. Uh, capture this spectrum. You know, I didn't expect it. Uh, good for them though. Who doesn't like a little bit more competition uh, in the wireless space? Because you know, Verizon in, in the Americas at least has been the dominant player. They have the best coverage and the best network quality for several years and nobody else seems to come close. Uh, sometimes you settle for somebody else like I do because it's good enough. But if you really want the best coverage, the best speeds, you had one choice up until now. So it would be nice in the next generation and 5G networking to see uh, more competition, you know, more more choices, better overall infrastructure for more than one company. So good yeah. for you, T-Mobile.
0: Well, and it, it is interesting, though, because we're, you know, we're hearing that 5G is is going to make, you know, having wire you know, it's going to hit speeds where it becomes practical to use that as your everyday connection, as opposed to mm-hmm. having a wired connection to your home and then using that for Wi-Fi and that kind of stuff. But focusing on this almost I don't want to call it point to point. That's an exaggeration, but this more narrow uh, use of this this really this really focused spectrum. You know, we're talking about twenty four, twenty eight. I've seen also reports that the FCC is going to be uh, auctioning off even higher spectrum. I mean, theoretically, that has some business use cases where you could do you know really high bandwidth point to point kind of stuff where you can set it up specifically to work around the restrictions of that spectrum. That's interesting in and of itself, but. How does that, yeah, solve this? You know, the classic problem with rolling out high-speed internet is always that last mile problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we build all this fiber out to along every single highway, but you know, how do we get it um, to a lot of these rural areas? And having that, uh, you know, this twenty-four twenty-eight gigahertz spectrum doesn't necessarily solve that. Maybe even if two point five gigahertz isn't the best for you know, quote unquote national coverage, I mean. Sprint already has the towers up, right, to be using this uh, theoretically. So you have a lot of infrastructure in place. Yes, you will have to actually take out most of the equipment to make it 5G capable or whatnot. But theoretically, maybe that that does a better job of solving that last mile problem. Interesting, though, to see – obviously, they have no choice but to act as if this merger is going to go through. But now the idea – if for whatever reason the DOJ puts the kibosh on this whole thing, the idea of T-Mobile kind of being stuck with all of this really high uh, – you know, high frequency spectrum, and not necessarily in a couple of years, having a plan for for a broader rollout could be very interesting.
1: Right? Yeah. And I think, you know, as long as they basically have a rollout that reaches the enterprise customers that they want, which I think is, which is what 5g is more aimed at, at least currently in its first iteration, then, it, then it's good for them. I guess worrying about that last mile to all those residences and rural customers, they can worry about that later. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get it to those high paying enterprise customers first that really need it for their application.
0: Yeah. I, I do have to wonder, though, if that will have some, you know, if someone can make a compelling use case or uh, make a compelling argument that, hey, we're going to solve that last mile problem. You know, maybe if the T Mobile Sprint uh, uh, merger really pushes that, and, and they have really brought that up as one of the reasons why they should be allowed to merge, maybe that will make a compelling argument. It certainly did do the FCC. We'll see if they can convince the DOJ uh, as well. Mm hmm. All right, and finally uh, today, Ken, I was reading a really interesting uh, post by uh, Howard Marks uh, of uh, DeepStorage.net fame. Never heard of him. Yeah, he's a uh, he. He knows a little bit about storage, and he published an yeah. interesting blog post looking at how the tape industry, which is constantly being declared dead uh, and never actually dying outright, may actually be killing itself. The uh, the big two players in the market, Sony and Fujifilm, are suing each other over patent infringement over their competing tape cartridges. Sony has confirmed that LTO 8 tape is no longer being imported, and supplies have already been reported as patchy in the U.S., so this will only exacerbate that situation, theoretically making it unavailable. Um, As members of the LTO Alliance, intellectual property licensing generally is agreed upon on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, otherwise known as FRAND, and that basically means you have a set and more mechanical licensing where you're not having to argue over licensing terms. It's like, okay, here's the rate. You pay it. We're not going to sue you or anything like that, and everybody's hunky-dory. Uh, the companies aren't going to be, uh, aren't going to a third party arbiter and will be taking the suit to court meaning that it won't be settled anytime soon and theoretically we're not going to have any LTO 8 uh, tape supply anytime soon. Uh, this leaves lower density LTO 7 tape available, which can be slotted into some LTO 8 systems, or at least that's the reporting I was seeing uh, in the register. Uh, and it, but it wouldn't it obviously wouldn't fill that gap of super high density tape that everyone I guess was counting on when they made up uh, all of their tape plans. But for organizations already mulling over, you know, kind of this move to, you know, maybe cloud object storage or, or basically away from tape into something, I don't know, from this century, uh, this market and supply uncertainty is really just putting gas in the fire, right?
1: Um, so I'll get to answering that question, but bear with me for a moment while I kind of work out my thought process behind okay. this. So tape has had a renaissance in the past few years, kind of as, as you've been describing Uh not necessarily as a primary storage target for backup, but probably as a secondary one, it's a great way to air gap this data against things like insider threats and ransomware. Um, Now, some of these cloud storage um, products have been coming out recently that are a compelling replacement, but the most compelling ones that are very price competitive with tape, guess what they're actually using in the cloud? Tape. (laughs) They don't say it, but we all know it, right? They're not somehow creating those cost savings on disk. There's just no way. So what what I'm looking at is basically the still a massive use case for tape. Customers are going to want it. There's still money to be made in this market. We have seen uh, basically IP and patent lawsuits like this threaten a specific component or technology in the past. And we have to bear with it with shortages and price hikes temporarily until eventually it works itself out and things kind of return to normal, quote unquote. So, I don't know that I necessarily share Howard's pessimism. I was joking, by the way, we all know Howard and love him, and he's very smart. He probably knows things that I don't about this particular story, but I see this as kind of a temporary roadblock that these companies are going to have to work out, uh, but I think that they will eventually. Uh, maybe it'll take longer and it'll frustrate some customers in the meantime, but there is no way that we are going to see Tape, enterprise, uh, tape uh, as as an industry die, there's too many use cases. It is still too relevant despite everybody saying it's dead.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like anybody that was kind of on the fence about, okay, we, you know, are we going to move to the cloud or something like that? I mean, they've, they're they already making that decision before this became an issue. And really it's, it's mm-hmm. the people that are already locked into it. And for whatever reason, you know, maybe you have like very serious, like long-term archiving plans that you just need something that you can just store in a... a you know, a sealed vault and it's just always going to be there or whatever. Like tape's always going to be the option for that, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And for also people that want some physical fitness uh, along with their storage medium uh, while moving that tape, um, you just can never get that from the cloud. Uh, so that's another benefit as well. Uh, but we'll see how that gets resolved. Uh, if there's any uh, resolution to the court case or they settle or they finally come to their senses and, you know, trade a couple pennies per tape and everybody's happy again, we'll report it here on the Gestalt IT Rundown. But Ken, That's the end of our show. Thank you so much. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined?
1: You can find my writing on gestaltit.com. I'm writing stuff every week there. Uh, If you want to just catch up on my random thoughts on tech and other things about life, just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nalbone.
0: Excellent. And you can find me on Gestalt IT as well, uh, and uh, on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology, Mr Anthropology. And I want to let everybody know that uh, if you're interested, um, you know, we talked about uh, some acquisitions by Palo Alto Networks earlier in the show, and they're actually going to be at Security Field Day uh, coming up on June 19th. They're going to be presenting in the afternoon, so check out techfieldday.com uh, to check out that live stream. And then uh, while you're there... Uh, earlier than that i should have prefaced that uh we'll also be doing uh, tech field extra from cisco live so check that out as well big event but we have some really cool presentations uh going on there uh so techfield.com for all of those excellent live streams uh, but we'll be back next week uh on wednesdays from twelve thirty p.m to roughly one o'clock uh running down the it news of the week here on the gestalt it rundown thanks so much for watching and from me from Ken, from any everybody here in the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.